0: Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate, with your host, Broker Associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher.
1: Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today, I have the honor of having the illuminating, elucidating, and illustrious managing director of Lieb at Law, Andrew Lieb. Hey, Andrew, how are you today?
2: John, I think with that intro, you should be doing basketball announcing. Like, that was amazing. Like, I feel like I'm supposed to slam the ball right now after that.
1: Well, I always like to, everything I said there, all those adjectives are true, you know, so what can I tell you?
2: And you didn't stumble. You got all these words, tongue twister out all like I, I was saying it in my head as you did it. And I almost messed it up.
1: <laughs> anyway, do you know, they, they just passed the uh, New York State just recently uh, enacted a new real estate law for brokers as part of their continuing education called cultural competency. Because I like opera, does that mean I'm
2: culturally competent or do I still have to take a real estate course? I love that you said that because when you and I were talking about mothers before we went on air and my mother-in-law, not my mother, likes to always tell me about culture, that she's really into culture and she wants to bring culture. She lives in this 55 plus place. She wants to bring culture to the ladies. And we always say to her, what does that mean, culture? And she goes, like an arts lecture. And I go, "Okay, just so we're clear, though, culture is like a really broad term. Like, are you talking about different races, different ethnicities, different religions, Do you know you can even have a culture from where you went to college or your block, your block as a culture like there's so many different cultures that we study and you can look at it. If you go into like the social sciences, you see all these different things of culture. So what does cultural competency even really mean in the first place? That's a very interesting question. And I'm not sure I figured out the answer. That all being said, I don't actually study social science. So I'm good. You're good. Yeah. But you teach this now, right? You're teaching this course. So we, we teach a course in my school, Leap School, our continuing education school that you can go to on LeapSchool.com. And we teach cultural competency because that's a required continuing education course in the state of New York. But what we teach it from, the way we teach all of our courses, is with two principles in mind. This is how we do everything. How do you make money and how do you not get sued? And so we teach it because we think real estate, yeah, right. (laughs) So we think real estate licensees, whether they're brokers, associate brokers, or salespersons, those are the only two questions they really care about. How do I make money and how do I not get sued? And yeah, so we taught this course live actually last week and we have it online on demand in our school. I think we're the only one or at least one of the first that offered it on demand for brokers to take, which they need to take every two years as part of their 22 and a half hours.
1: Wow. So now is that uh, because I just got a notice saying that uh, if I was a new broker, I had to take the course. Does it also apply straight across the board now?
2: Yeah, no, it's straight across the board. So I think what you're referring to is there's a requirement that's changed to get the brokerage license in the first place. But as far as continuing ed, that's required now. Implicit bias is required now. Fair housing is required now agency is required out there's so many required it's going to be no electives soon and we restructured our packages online now instead of having a package of all your 22 and a half hours which we still offer we now have a required package that you could take and then you could pick your own electives as well because there's so many required topics
1: right 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 so what do you teach and uh, how do you teach people to be uh, culturally competent i mean what does what does that
2: entail I'll tell you what I think it entails if you don't want to get sued, because remember my motto, how to make money and not get sued. And so the way you don't get sued is you don't be competent in your clients' cultures. You don't try and assimilate. You don't try and stereotype. You don't change your practice based on who the people you're working with is. Instead, what you do is you become culturally proficient in the culture. Remember, I told you there's different cultures in different blocks and stuff of the local real estate brokerage market and transactions market. So to put that in an illustration, someone comes here from New York City, China, Iowa, Ireland, you treat them all the same, but you say here, you're a Sag Harbor broker. You say here in Sag Harbor, here's how we do deals. Here's the contract information that you're gonna deal with. Here's the title insurance information you're gonna deal with. Here's how brokers get paid. We want to teach you all about the local culture of real estate brokerage and transactions here. And that's the key to cultural competency to understand all these different cultures, but to help each individual person trying to make a deal have the best access. That's the key word when you only get sued to discrimination. The best access to be able to make the deal they want to make. Money plays, people don't.
1: Got it. Oh, that's great. Um, I don't know where I read this. I know you have a blog... And you also have a book uh, you recently published, uh, 10 Strategies to Purchase Property Post-Pandemic. And I don't know where I saw this, but it says uh, one of the things, if uh, you're a seller and you want to sell your house, um, what you should do is list the house as is, no contingencies. Now, what specifically does that mean?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. We're we're shifting a little. Um, And interestingly enough, that's a cultural statement too. Why is that a cultural statement? Because I'm sure that there's different places throughout the world where this wouldn't uphold. This wouldn't be the rule. How do you sell your house if you're a seller if you want to get rid of it quickly? That's really the question because people are afraid these days, John. To chase the market. They don't want to chase the market, meaning when the market goes down, they don't want to keep going behind it and lowering the price. They want to get in front of the market so they can sell their house and have a quick turnaround time. So the answer of selling it with no contingencies is only applicable when you're dealing with buying and selling real estate that have contingencies traditionally. So what are some of the contingencies I think you see your broker? What do you see as some of the contingencies that people are saying?
1: Well, used to be, I don't see that much now, but now most of the deals are cash, but there would be a mortgage contingency.
2: Well, I think you just said it. So people that wanted to sell the house, they would say, hey, I want to sell the house. And they would allow someone to have a mortgage contingency. And then the house wouldn't appraise because the market's going down. Or there would be a problem with the title and the mortgage company wouldn't go forward. And then the deal would fall apart. And then the seller would still have the house on the market with a lower valuation and have to start again. So a mortgage contingency is a perfect example of what a seller should be doing. They should be saying, Hey, I'm not accepting mortgage contingencies. I'm only accepting cash because if I was to allow you this contingency, what does a contingency really mean? A way out of the deal. So I'm not going to let you a way out of the deal. Doesn't that make sense? Oh,
1: I love it. Now, what about the as is part? Because, uh, I recently had uh, a situation where it was as is, however, the uh, buyer uh, found termites. Now, uh, but the, the contract, though it wasn't signed yet, had as is. Now, does as is mean that it doesn't matter that the termites are there or as is you have to take care of the termites? How does that work?
2: Well, when you see a contract, and we're going to go to your point that it wasn't signed in a second, the timing, the inspection, because that was kind of interesting. But there's no contract that just says, as is. It says, as is and expresses what the condition is and what exceptions there are to the condition. That's why a contract's lots of pages. And you don't just give someone a piece of paper or a napkin that says, as is, sign here. That's what more of we'll see in the brokerage world. But I'm going to tell you how they do it in Manhattan. Culture again, different culture, Manhattan versus say Harbor. In Manhattan, they say, you don't get an inspection before you sign a contract because we want to have the specific terms of what you have to accept and what you don't have to accept already agreed to. Before you do your due diligence, which is that inspection, whether it be a homeowner's inspection, like an inspection to see a home inspection, to the condition of the property, the accessible features, or it's a wood-destroying insect inspection, like you were just referring to with termites. So the problem here is if you were doing a sale with no contingencies, you would never allow someone to get an inspection before they entered the contract. Because by allowing them to have the inspection before they enter the contract, you've just created a contingency. They don't like the result of the inspection. They don't have to sign the contract. They're not bound to the deal. And now you have an adverse inspection that you have to deal with. Makes sense. Oh, total.
1: You know, that's what you're saying, uh, because I know a lot of the attorneys out here, that's um, they want to have the inspection done before contracts are signed. And you're saying that in
2: Manhattan, they want the contract signed uh, before inspections. I don't think an attorney ever was sleeping at night and started twitching and went, ah! and they woke up and they go, I really want this inspection done this way. I don't think the attorneys actually care one way or the other, to be completely honest with you. I've never been to the attorney convention where they were like caring one way or the other. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you that when there's a hot demand market and buyers have no power, it's in a seller's best interest to have no inspections until the buyers are bound In Manhattan, we have a hotter market with a quicker turnover rate than we do in the Hamptons for general times. That's just how it is. There's many more people and many more deals. And so when there's leverage that the seller has, they say, hey, no, we can't do this. But when you get to the Hamptons and we talk about what attorneys want, a buyer's attorney, forgetting the attorneys in general, A buyer's attorney, assuming they're looking out for the best interest of their buyer because that's their fiduciary duty, would always want as many inspections as possible before being bound to the contract, assuming the market's not hot enough that the seller would find another buyer while the inspections were going on. A seller's attorney would always want as less inspections as possible. What you often find on very expensive property, though, is some sort of compromise. And this is where a broker like the famous John Christopher comes in, he might say, hey, you're buying a $20 million property. Here's our compromise. Why doesn't the buyer give some money for an inspection period, non-refundable, just the money for inspection period? You're not bound to any contract to stay in, but it's a money, a contract to take the property off the market, an option period, Mm -hmm. where you don't do it with someone else, a deal with someone else, but neither side's bound to this because it might be worth throwing a few shekels at this thing if you're going to spend $20 million and you want to have a chance to walk and the seller says no, if that makes sense.
1: it makes total sense. Um, I wish that more attorneys were like you. (laughs) 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 Because I think it would make my life easier. But anyway.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't do closing, so I'm only telling you how it really goes. I'm a litigator by trade. And I think the big difference between a litigator and a transactional attorney for the most part is a transactional attorney understands the friction cost in straying from the way they do things. They make every money by volume. Even if they're charging $5,000 per closing, they do it by volume. And they have to say, I learned rote learning. I know how to do something. I memorized it. My team knows how to memorize it. We do A, B, C, D, we're done. A, B, C, D, we're done. A, B, C, D, we're done. A litigator says in deductive reasoning, does this make sense? What's my cost-benefit analysis? And how do I make this make the most advantageous situation for my client, knowing budgetary constraints? So my point to you is if you were to speak to most attorneys who aren't trained as either transactional or litigation, and you ask them what they thought, they'd probably go with the latter. But if you went to the economics of being a closing attorney, the former of doing it in wrote, and just repeat, 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 is the economics of the industry that forces those attorneys to act that way.
1: Understood. Um we don't have much time, but I know there's something that that's close to my heart, and that's commissions. Ha. And speaking of as a litigator, you recently defended someone uh, that we both know, and one because the seller refused to pay the commission. Do you have any tips that you can give to agents you know that when they go to the closing and they say, I'm not going to pay your commission? And we have like ten minutes. Ten seconds, I mean.
2: Well, I would tell you the best tip to do is to document everything, to make sure you have a paper trail of all the things that happen, because when you read a commission agreement, an exclusive right to sell, exclusive right to run, there's different triggers to commission, and there doesn't necessarily need to be a closing for the commission to happen. So document every conversation every text, every action. That's the best thing you could do in any litigation. Give your attorneys the tools to get you paid, because after all, a lobster roll is a necessary celebration with John Christopher after you get a commission.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. OK, uh, Andrew, how can somebody get in touch with you if they
2: have some more questions? Well, I think I would prefer to say that they could find me fishing, but unfortunately, it's getting cold outside. Right. It's 631-878-4455. That's my phone number. Give me a buzz. I love a litigation. A lawsuit a day keeps the doctor away.
1: Sounds great. Andrew Lieb of uh, Lieb at Law. It's always a pleasure having you on the program. This is John Christopher for real life on the only NPR station on Long Island. W.L.I.W. 88.3 FM. Please stay right where you are since we'll be right back with our next guest. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher. And today I have a top producer from Westport, Connecticut, Maria Tazzolos. Hi, Maria. How are you today? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm doing great. You know something, before we talk about the Westport area, let's talk a little bit about you. I know you were born in Greece, so how did you get from Greece to Westport?
3: Okay, so I was born in Greece in a little village outside of Kalamata. Uh, Kalamata, Salonika, by the way, is that by,
1: I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes,
3: one? it is. It is. And it's a little village outside of Kalamata. Kalamata is a beautiful um, city right by the water. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in the little village. My, my parents were uh, olive uh, growers. Oh. So, and we still have some fields there that are being taken care of. And once in a while we, you know, we go back and visit those, but they still produce the oil. So it's, that's it's a fabulous. lot of fun.
1: Um, do you ever bring any of that oil back?
3: Actually, my, we didn't, cause it was, it's, it ends up being pretty expensive, you know, when shipping you, it was right. But my uncle has such sentimental feelings for it. He ships it uh, quite often. So, oh, um, yeah. And in 1970, 1967, we immigrated to the U S we were in Norwalk, Connecticut I grew up there. And then when I got married, my husband and I moved to Westport. So we've been there 20 years. Now, did you speak English when you
1: were in Greece? No,
3: not at all. No, it was very hard. It was it was it was pretty um, big adjustment. Um, I was young. So that was that was an advantage. But yeah, it was a little scary because we weren't we don't have the technology that we have today to be exposed and, you know, um, to all the Differences, so it was. It was. It was hard.
1: It was. It was scary. Well, you're (laughs) speaking quite well now, so that's that's all good. Um, You also mentioned that, uh, or I read this, that you your family has a local business in Fairfield County. Is actually my
3: husband. My husband's business is a very popular business in town. It's called Sherwood Diner, and it's right off it off of Exit eighteen. Um, he's been in the business, uh, for quite some time. We, over 30 years, Um uh, when I first met him, he was involved in the business. He was working there and then eventually bought into the business and he's been there since. So it's a local, local, really very popular, uh, spot and very supported by the community.
1: That's great. That is really great. Um, okay. what attracted you to real estate?
3: I have no idea. <laughs> I was in corporate world prior to my my earlier years. Um, then I worked for an attorney during the time my children, I have four children and they grew up and I was investing a lot on my own and doing some personal things and worked for a real estate attorney. Uh, when the kids got a little bit older, um, I decided for some reason to go and t- uh, take the real estate course. I did everything to fight that and I was like I don't I don't know why I called up. I gave the lady every hard time possible to not show up when I was supposed to show up. And long story short, I ended up going uh the minute I sat in the class and started talking and you know uh, listening to everything. It, it just like was amazing and I loved every second of it and that was about 13 years ago. So
1: so let me issue the uh Simple question. What kind of advice would you give if somebody was thinking about uh, becoming an agent?
3: I, um, I said something to my daughter one time um, because she was very concerned about, you know, doing well on her exam. And I, and she said to me, um, you know, Mommy, I'm not going to get an A or I'm not going to get a B or whatever. And I said to her, you know something, don't worry about it. I said, work hard and the grades will come. So for me, one of my philosophies is that the clients come first and it's not about commissions. It's it's about, you know, giving good service. And I do strongly believe that those things do come once you do that. They happen by themselves. In other words, that doesn't have to be my goal. That will happen. So I, I really try to, you know, um, follow that as much as possible.
1: So it sounds like you have a a long-term view as compared to, I know. Yes,
3: that's that's a good way of saying it, yeah.
1: Right, because I know a lot, you know, over the years I've seen a lot of people and they have this short-term, you know, let Mm -hmm. me get in, make the money Mm -hmm. and not think about what's going to happen in the future. And I don't think that's the way to go. No, it's not your way either.
3: No, it's not. And I believe in investing in my business. And that's part of the investment that I make. And even- I hope to follow it. You know, I, yeah. I try to follow it and I do follow it, actually. So Sure.
1: Yeah. Then well, well, you couldn't be a platinum producer <laughs> if that wasn't the case, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any mentors along the way that gave you any advice that you still employ today?
3: Uh, yes. When I first started in our office and I've been with the same office, the Sotheby's office, because I really love their brand and I love all the people I work with. It's like a family to me. Um, I have not switched offices. I know some people do switch, but I've been here. There were several people here that that have retired since that really I enjoyed working with and asking a lot of questions. But my mentors were really quite a few people. I was like a sponge. I just sat and listened and constantly listened and constantly asked questions. I was probably annoying, but I didn't think so at the time, you know,
1: but. Yeah, but I don't know. Is there anything that sticks in your mind that you recall?
3: Um, yes, actually, there was a, a wonderful lady. Her name was Vera that worked in our office and she was very successful. Um, she gave me the, the ability to go out and just tag along in a several um, listing presentations with her. And it wasn't just about real estate with her. She really got to know the people. She She enjoyed their company and she was very interesting and she was very smart and worked very hard, but also she really wanted to get to know them as people. So I was kind of amazed when I went, it wasn't this list of real estate questions or, you know, stuff like that. So it was, it was very opening because she really wanted to know about them. And uh, I think that was one of the, um, along with other technical stuff, don't get me wrong, but I think getting to know them, seeing their needs, seeing their family life, what their, you know, their structure is like. And and seeing what their goals are, you know, I think that was, you know, she was a good listener. So I thought that I thought I learned that very much so from her.
1: Right. That's that's great advice. So, it was very interesting. A lot
3: of hobbies, a lot of interests, you know. So
1: yeah. <laughs> um so let's talk about Westport. How's the inventory? Terrible. <laughs> Not much. Huh? Is that what you're saying?
3: Uh, no, it isn't. It's actually we usually average uh, around 350 homes. And uh, we're really like 100. And I had about 113 right now. Uh, it changes daily, but about 113. We were as low as 70 a couple of months ago and 60 a couple of months ago. So people are
1: just gobbling up the inventory.
3: People are gobbling up. People are not moving because it's very difficult for them to figure out where they would like to go. So um, I think that's a common thing. It's not just in Westport. I think it's all over. Um, I do the local areas and it's the same theme all over. But, yeah, hesitation to putting on and and not as much new construction being done as in the past.
1: Yeah. Um, Is Westport more of a vacation spot or is it a final destination?
3: Oh, no, definitely a final destination. There is a high percentage. And in, in the summertime, we do have quite a few summer rentals that are really a lot of fun, especially June through July. Um, that's a vibrant part of it. But I would say, no, it's a, it's a final destination. It's um, got a great commute into the city. It's a beautiful town. It's intimate. It's very New Englandy, but yet it has all the modern nuances and all the modern needs of of people. So it's a really fun town. How how
1: long is the uh, commute into the city? Just curious.
3: Um, I would say about close to sixty minutes, maybe a few more. The the trains mean, were a little slower lately. They are speeding up is again. An hour
1: but, you're in the city. That, that's yeah, it?
3: about an hour and ten minutes, the most. Wow. Yeah. hmm wow. Yeah, especially if you're on the express train, you know. So.
1: You know, that, yeah, you know, in other time. words, there's fewer stops along the way. Yes, yes.
3: As a matter of fact, um, the other, I think it was uh, Tuesday night, we went into the city. Sotheby's was having a big um, tour around Manhattan and we were running late. We got there pretty quickly. So it was, it was, it, I, I even tested on the boat. time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how was so. the, uh, when you say the rental market in the summer, how was this, this uh, summer's rental market?
3: It's good. There's uh, I think we have quite a bit of connection between some people come are coming. They used to go to the Hamptons. Uh, Some people come here. A lot of New Yorkers come for the summer. Uh, July and August is really popular. Um, If you have a pool, it's really um, uh, gives you a premium. If you're a homeowner who has a pool, that's you you get a premium prices for it. Um, But there's a big demand for summer rentals, especially July and August.
1: How about the year-round rentals? Are they hard to find?
3: Very hard. Um, they're very, very hard. Very low. I don't have the numbers for them today because there's really not many. Not much um, out there. Not much out there, and the prices are um, very high. So hmm. it's the first time for me that I have seen in my career. The usually they they move in opposite direction. The rentals are up and the sales are down. But right. it's we're in a unique situation where you know rentals are. You know, the, the inventory is low for rentals and for homes. So
1: that's interesting because this year in the Hamptons, uh, the rental market was uh, slow. A lot of uh, owners were calling saying, how come my place says, you know, I've rented it for the past 10 years and this is the first year mm-hmm. I couldn't rent it. Mm-hmm. And I guess they're all going to Westport.
3: I don't know. (laughs) Maybe (laughs) during the when the pandemic started, I was working literally from six in the morning, um, you know, till late in the evening for rentals. It was frantic. We didn't have that kind of a summer, but it's always it's always very, very strong market for the rental market in in Westport Uh, because we have the beaches and there's a lot of amenities here that people enjoy. And it's a lot
1: of fun. I got to get up there.
3: Yeah, definitely. I'll take you to lunch at a very hot spot. Okay. (laughs) Okay. You have a deal.
1: (laughs) Has the uh, sales market changed, just say, within the last six months? If so, how so?
3: Yes, it has. uh, We had a very, very strong spring. March through, I would say, like May was extremely strong. And the numbers coming out are, uh, you know, over asking significantly But I think in the last couple of months, I think it's still strong and it will remain strong because of the the high demand and low inventory. There is a softening, though. Um, You know, if you have a home where you would have lines of people waiting or I'm exaggerating a little but or like you have 20 offers, which it's true, there have been 20 offers, you might get 10 or you might get three where you had five offers, you may get two. It's still, you know, over asking and it's You know, it's still a strong market, but I have seen a little bit of a difference with the rates going up.
1: Yeah. Are there bidding wars? Are you still having? Yes.
3: Yes. If you have a very desirable home in a really desirable location, I think all the locations are great, but some may be a little bit more than others. Like if you're near the beach or something or certain parts, I think that the demand is still there and the multiple bids are still there. Um, And it depends on the price point, too. You know, right. um, are the median price in Westbrook has jumped significantly in the last year. Um, it was from one six. We're up to two million now. So
1: but so the it's demand it's is still on. there. Yes. Yeah, and so and the it.
3: multiple bids are still there.
1: Well, I imagine uh, our comps um, hard to do because, uh, yes. say, a year ago because the, the 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 rising prices.
3: Very, very hard to do. And you have to also like this year, if you're pricing a home, Um, during the springtime you have to take into account you know the softening of the market even though as slightly it might be slightly slight in certain areas you still have to take that into consideration and you may not have all the numbers needed to figure that out so you you kind of feel the tempo of of what's What's happening
1: right yeah yeah If, if someone had some more questions about the westport area how could they reach you maria
3: um, they can uh, email me, uh, and my email is M-T-Z-I-O-L-I-S at williampitt.com.
1: Fantastic. Maria So it was a pleasure having you on the program. This is John Christopher for Real Life, broadcasting here in the bustling village of Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island, W-L-I-W 88.3 FM. If you'd like to hear this program again or any other podcast, please go to WLIW.org slash radio slash real life. Thank you so much for listening. And in the meantime, be sure to have an awesome journey.
0: You have been listening to Real Life the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. wliw Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM. Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at WLIW.org slash radio.